Associates, Cinephile. Oftentimes, we love discussing the Oscars and saying, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that did? You know, ordinary people of a raging bull, Dancing with Wolves for Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction losing a Forrest Gump. Oh, my goodness. Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Bruckheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic cinema? No, I make movies for audiences, for popular culture. Same person who likes my dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. They're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. Is there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys? Cinephile. I think yeah, there's just more uh, suit envy. The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor? It'd be the Prince of Pain. I was about five hours old, and I was being put down by my family. Cinephile. Does Adnan Virk look like the undercover CIA agent who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman, smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, Welcome to Tangier. Cinephile, the Adnan Virk movie podcast. It wants to be profound to show how people of different ethnicities can learn to get along, but it is told predominantly from the white man's perspective, leaving it uneven with a patronizing ending. That's Rose Paquette of St. Anthony Messenger, a review of Hostiles, one of the three new films we'll be reviewing, along with Call Be My Your Name, which is an Oscar contender, and for the kids, Ferdinand. Great to have you with us here on Cinephile. I should clarify, last time I kept mentioning this guy, Passmore. So Rick Passmore has now joined the crew. We have executive producer Dan Stanzig who is thrilled about uh, Curtis Granderson coming to the Blue Jays. That's what he's focused on. Rick Passmore is now our social media guy, cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, producer slash social media coordinator. So you'll hear him jump in from time to time. He's the one now sending out tweets on my uh, Twitter feed, Adnan ESPN, A-D-N-A-N ESPN, and uh, also Instagram and, and all that kind of stuff. I think you're selling Rick short already. I mean, amateur filmmaker. Amateur filmmaker, true. Password, tell people what your movie Cinephile. is, where they can find it. My goodness. He also lent me Pan's Labyrinth, which was huge. I just watched it again. Well, the movie you're talking about is Head yeah. from Elmwood Productions. It's local here in Connecticut, and we do all of our stuff with puppets. It's currently in uh, distribution limbo right now. It's going through the QC, but we did make a deal. So uh, oh, nice. that's all we got for right now. All but right. All Filmmaker, the of, Rick Password. All the rest of the stuff, elmwood.vhx.tv. Awesome. My man. So we're, we are building up once again. Carlton Gillespie is putting in work. We, we've got, listen, we're trying for everybody, all right? P.T. Anderson, Sam Rockwell, Chris Hemsworth, you name it. And we got a great guest today, Tracy Letts, who is the father in Lady Bird. He's also a Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote August Osage County, and he's also a Tony Award winner. He acted in the revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He's not only in Lady Bird, but he's also in The Post. So Tracy Letts in just a second. But here's the big thing. So last time we did our top ten list, and so... Dan fired through his list, and I fired through mine, and we had Errol Morris coming up. So I didn't get a chance to react to Dan's picks. And ideally, listen, if we both had screeners and had all the time in the world, we would do like a Cisco Lieber thing. Dan and I would watch the movie together and discuss it more. So now that he's seen all these movies, now I have questions for him about some of the films that he's seen. I'm so excited. It's like, hey, somebody else saw them. So Shape of Water, which was in your top ten list. Yeah, it was in the top five. I think it was three or four. Egg timer scene. Discuss. Oh, yeah. It's the start of the movie. Whoa. 
you're watching it and you're like, is what's happening what I think is happening? Is, are they really doing this? Like, what, what's going on here? And then, and then that there's kind of a theme throughout with, with the eggs, if you will. And I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, like a much, it's funny. Somebody said to me, like, you need to keep talking about the sweet movie. It's awfully gory. Like the fact that Shannon has a line in which she says, Oh, you're the one who found my fingers. <laughs> like I want a t-shirt with that. You're the one who found my fingers. Yeah. It's a sweet movie. Like the emotions between the characters, <laughs> but things that happen in that film are rather disturbing visually, but it is a very lyrical movie. There is the, the score is tremendous. I think that's going yes. to win. I assume. Yes. Alexander. I'm not a great music guy, but I, it's, Pretty incredible. Yeah, it's going to go head to head with Hans Zimmer for Dunkirk, which is, I think, I don't think there's a score has been used more in a movie. Like, I think Zimmer's score in Dunkirk, I want to say, is like 70% of the film. So that's going to be a good head to head. But to your point, Desplat has won the Golden Globe and he also won Critics' Choice Award for Best Score. Second question. I'm so happy you saw The Big Sick. What did you learn more about Pakistani culture after seeing this film from Kumail Nanjiani? I did not know the questions were going to be that deep and culturally specific. <laughs> What did I learn more? I mean, I've known you for years, so... To my point, Rob Lemley said, he goes, you know, that whole scene where they're, like, bringing over different women to me, he goes, he should have said yes to a couple of those. Like, like There was one of them that was pretty... Well, Lem, come on. Uh, yeah, one of them seemed pretty cool, I guess. Right. But, yeah, I guess that's something that I was aware of but never really thought about all right. that much because it's not a reality for me. Right. I can't imagine if Mark and Katie were bringing <laughs> women over to the house and saying, like, eh, look who showed up. Like, that'd be very strange to me. The fact right. that that, like, your marriage was not an arranged marriage, correct? Right. So maybe I just never thought of more about it, but I guess that still happens. Right. Speaking of Mark and Katie, so Lady Bird, which my brother, by the way, my brother appreciated the shout-out, but he was shocked that you had Lady Bird as the best one of the year. He was pushing for Thor Ragnarok. but <laughs> He was happy Logan made all three of our top tens. Lady Bird, I, I'm trying to guess because it's always a personal connection with movies. Did Lady Bird remind you more of Mora or Elizabeth, or is Laurie Metcalf like your mom, Katie Stanzik? I don't think Lady Bird reminded me of either of my sisters. It reminded me of girls I went to high school with, like a two or three put together kind of. I was like, oh, I, I know people that were like her in high school. I think for me, the personal connection is I was in high school at the time where the movie is set. So I'm a high school student during 2002, which is where the movie is set. So all the things happening in and around the movie, the music being played, the fact that it was a Catholic school, like that was my own personal experience. I connected a lot to the movie because of that. You love the song Crash Into Me by Dave Matthews Band. I mean, there was plenty of school dance where I was, you know, up close with a lucky lady dancing to that song. Oh, yeah. Fourth question. Dunkirk, as people who know Cinephile well, when I gave it three and a half maple leaves, or maybe I gave it four and I said because of the theatrical experience, you go, I didn't love it as much as you did. Yet you had Dunkirk in your top five. So do you like it more in appreciation or there's just not that many other good movies? I think in comparison to the other movies, it stands out. I, I think it was like I saw it in June and you right away, right away, you were like, it's the best war movie since Saving Private Ryan, which is a movie from the 90s. So like already you had it as like the best film in 20 years. And I was like, hey, let's pump the brakes. As a radio producer, I'm conscious of not being a prisoner of the moment. Right. So at the time I was like, it is a very good movie. It's suspenseful. The music's great. The action's great. And I expected this, you know, the, the what do you call it? The Oscar bait. I right. expected these films to be better than they have been. Oh, Would so you say it's been a disappointing year in I movies? I think it's been a good year, but it's just... Like I, uh, that in mind, I haven't seen The Post. I haven't seen Phantom Thread, which right. I don't think is getting great reviews. No. Um, 90% so, Rotten Tomatoes, but 72% from the fans. So, yeah. Right. So I think it was at the time, it was like, all right, it was a good movie. I, I, I don't think, let's not vault it to this great movie yet. And lastly, 
In Session Film tweeted, what is your favorite scene of the year? And I immediately tweeted, I said, Lori Metcalf driving away from the airport. Another great one, Logan, the last scene where they fixed the cross. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Normally that stuff comes off as hokey and things I don't like, but I saw it and I was like, I, I kind of liked it. How good was the use of Johnny Cash? Of course, Mangold did walk the line. In the end credits, the song is The Man Comes Around, and the trailer for Logan uses Hurt as well. That Honestly, I didn't even notice. Didn't even notice. No, but the film is great. I, I'm Like nice. I said, I'm not a comic book guy, but that film, tremendous. All right. My palate is clean now. I want to just quiz. Just had some pending answers here. It's been bothering me all week since I saw Dan. And big news, Dan Stasek's going to the Oscars. Yes. TBD, TBD. Uh, there was a, a credential request which was approved, but we still have some logistical hurdles to hurdle, for lack of a better term. I will be in the state of California that weekend okay. anyway. Okay. So the company doesn't necessarily have to pay for my flight, yes. which is good, or my lodging. I don't have a tuxedo. You don't need a tuxedo. Renting a car. And so, the, so there are some questions that okay. P. Genesini is going to have to answer. He has avoided my email, which I sent the other day, and I saw him today from afar, and we, I think he avoided eye contact with me. Genesini yesterday tweeted, I, I know exactly what he was doing. He yesterday tweeted he saw the naked gun for the first time in a long time and loved it. Anish Shroff immediately tweeted back, does it hold up? Genesini wrote back, not really, but that makes it even better, which I don't understand what that means. I, I, a movie has to hold up. I like it more. If it doesn't hold up, like what, what was I thinking about that movie? The Great Outdoors wasn't a classic. As I mentioned, I love P.T. Anderson. We're trying to get him on the podcast at some point. I was watching. He was on uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and Kimmel said to me, you know, you're one of my favorite filmmakers. And he goes, so tell me about Daniel Day-Lewis. He goes, he's in character for weeks, months. He goes, yeah, months. He goes, so he just shows up. And he goes, by the way, the character's name is Reynolds Woodcock? P.T. Anderson goes, yeah. And Kimmel goes, Woodcock. Like, seriously, this guy's Daniel Day-Lewis, and the name's Woodcock? And he goes, Daniel came up with it. He likes that one. And he goes, all right. So he goes, he shows up. He's just Reynolds. He goes, yeah. He goes, isn't that annoying if you're like, hey, man, I'm hungry. I, I could use a snack. He goes, no, as a director, I love it because I write something, and then I have a three-dimensional person who is that guy. So he just answers as Reynolds the entire time. He goes, but what if you're like, hey, knock that off. I want to talk to somebody. He goes, there's nothing to talk about because we worked on the script. We collaborated and everything. There's really no issues. Like, we just do it. And to then I started thinking, like, what if there was a family emergency? Like, wife, like, he's got three boys. Like, does he talk to his kids as Reynolds Woodcock? It's like, that's not make any sense. He's this fashion designer. And Paul Thomas here goes, all I can tell you is when he shows up on set, when he leaves, he's that guy the entire time. So then Kimmel goes, well, he goes, this movie's actually pretty funny. He goes, like, I, I was surprised at how funny it is. And P.T. Anderson yeah, well, said, yeah, I mean, it's a gothic romance, and it's, you know, but, but we can put humor in there. And he goes, Dale is a lot funnier than you think. He goes, for being the world's greatest actor, he has terrible taste in, in TV. And Kimmel goes, well, try me. He goes, <laughs> he was obsessed with the show Naked and Afraid on Discovery Channel. <laughs> Kimmel's like, you're kidding. He's like, no. Daniel Day-Lewis loves that show. He's like, oh, you got to see this episode. Like, <laughs> I never thought. <laughs> Arguably, the world's greatest actor would love Naked and Afraid. But apparently, that is the case. I also want to pass along, Rick Passmore has now d deleted Guardians of the Galaxy 2 through peer pressure. The Big Sick is now in your top ten. Is that correct? That is correct. Thank you. I'm glad I lent you the screener for that one. Let's do some reviews, shall we? Tracy Letts is coming up a little bit later on. Call Me By Your Name, New Italian Romance. So, this is this is the life I lead. Dan's referred to me as affable before, which I think is probably accurate. But I'm also vigorously antisocial. To wit, I fly to the Rose Bowl, Tom Rinaldi in the lobby, <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, Tom, I got to go. I, I checked at 6.30, 8 o'clock showing Arclight Hollywood, The Post. Got to go see The Post. This was like December 26th. Yeah, it was after my Phantom Threat adventure. So, bam, knocked at The Post. I go to New Orleans for three days. Hey, revelry. I got to go see all the money in the world. Knocked that out. 
I'm in Atlanta for a national championship. We have a big college football party. Everybody gets together. I'm like, I gotta go see Call Me By Your Name. So I go to the theater. It's playing in one theater in Atlanta, 20 miles away. I don't have an Uber account. So I had to get a cab from the hotel. I <laughs> know we, we can comment on this in a second. Trust me, it's going to come back to haunt me. I get to the theater, 715 show, sold out. Call Me By Your Name, a story about a gay Italian romance is sold out in Atlanta. All right. I'll watch some NFL games. Titans came back. Great. I watched the first half of whatever the late game was. Uh, I don't remember. Saints game, I think. Yeah, Saints-Panthers. So, okay, 10 o'clock show. I go in there. <clears throat> For those who don't know what Call Me By Your Name is about, it's a romance between a 17-year-old boy and a 24-year-old boy. The entire theater was men. So when I went in there, and you have to get your own ticket, and mine was like C1. It was on the corner. <laughs> I go in this theater, and the entire row is empty, and then C2 is occupied by a guy. And I go, well, I'll just sit somewhere else. So I sit B1, one row down, obviously. Five minutes there, a guy looks, you're in our seats, two guys. Oh, no problem. Sorry. I go back, sit in D1. Come there, a couple guys. Oh, sorry, you're in our seat. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh well, mine's a C1. The guy in C2 goes, yeah, it's open. I'm like, <clears throat> great. Sit down in the seat. Now, again, this this is a movie which is a very slow burn about male eroticism. But at one point, I don't know if anyone has ever had this happen to you. I could feel him staring at me. I'm watching this movie, and it's like this romantic scene. I can feel the guy staring, and I go, all right, I'm now, and I'm full spoiler alert. There's a scene in which Timothy Chalamet masturbates with a piece of fruit, with a peach. And I can feel this guy looking at me. I am literally, both hands are hugging the armrest. I'm one cheek up. I'm like, I'm, I'm just ready to make a move. Like, if something happens, I'm running out of here. So this movie, I just want to make this clear. This this is the experience I've gone through. Phantom Threat experience. By the way, ready to make a move. Probably not the best choice of words there. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen here. So uh, I, I wasn't exactly comfortable the entire time in this theater. Having said all of that, the movie's a disappointment, all right? It's getting nominated. It's getting all these top ten lists, et cetera. I can appreciate queer cinema. I thought Brokeback Mountain should have won Best Picture. I thought that was a way better movie than Crash. Ben Lyons disputes this. He thinks Crash is good. He's wrong. Crash is one of the most overrated Best Picture winners of our lifetime. Brokeback Mountain's this beautiful story, wonderfully shot. Ang Lee, love the performances. Heath Ledger, Jake Gyllenhaal. It's about love. It's about loneliness. It's emotional. It's something different. You've never seen it before. This is a film about a 17-year-old boy who spends 80% of the movie with his shirt off in, in Italy. His dad's Michael Stuhlberg, who's everywhere. He's also in Shape of Water playing, I don't want to give it away. He's also playing somebody who works at the uh, facility. And um, so that's his dad. His dad's like this rich, you know, professor. And then Army Hammer shows up, his college student. And then they get to hang out. I'm telling you right now, 100 minutes of this film is, you want to go swimming? You want to take a bike ride? And it's just beautiful Italian sunset. And, of course, the boy's not saying anything. He's coming to terms with emotions. And Army Hammer is supposed to be 24 in this movie. Again, he spends 80% of the movie with his shirt off, short shorts. I'm, this guy looks at least in his 30s. And Chalamet, listen, I get now everybody's hairy at the age of 17, but he looks like he's 14. So you feel like you're watching between a 14-year-old boy and like a 30-year-old boy, which is different than 17, 24. All that being said, it reminds me, because I've seen all these critics, they're raving about it. It's like 95% Rotten Tomatoes. They said it's much like an Eric Romare film. Eric Romero is a French filmmaker who's known for these very talky films. And it reminded me of what Mamet said in the um, masterclass that I took. He said, movies are supposed to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. French movies don't do that, which is why they're so effing boring. <laughs> this is an Italian movie, but it feels like a French film by Eric Romero, and it was a giant disappointment. I mean, I'm all for longing and emotion, but it takes forever to get to that point. And once the two guys finally admit that they have feelings for each other, 
again, the payoff isn't what it should be. I, I, it's well acted. I get the fact Chalamet's nominated. It's a, it's a sweet, tender performance. I think Hammer's going to get nominated, but I'm astonished it's going to get a Best Picture nomination. And now Luca Guad, Guadagnino, the Best Director, now might get omitted from the list because now Greta Gerwig's going to get a bit of a push. Bottom line is this. It was a real disappointment. And, and, and by the way, the Uber account story. So I get out of the movie. It's 1 in the morning now. I'm in Atlanta. I, I get it back to my hotel. I get national championship tomorrow. I'm like, I asked the guy, I'm like, somebody kill me a cab because you don't have an Uber account? I'm like, no. He goes, really? I'm like, we're in Atlanta. It's a major city. You can't do There's no yellow cabs available? He's like, it's going to be dicey. <laughs> so Did wait. you get one? Yeah, I had to wait outside. I was close to like calling our production coordinator. I'm like, hey, and everyone's at the party because someone just said a yellow cab to this mall. I just watched Call Me By Your Name, which is about a night. Do you know how to get to the app store on your phone? I feel like I'm talking to my parents. I'm not going to do Uber. There's something romantic about a guy. I don't. Have a no, no, there's not. No, there's something about a guy who's reading a hardcover book, waiting for a yellow cab. You've seen Taxi Driver too many times. <laughs> Dan is disgusted. Let's move on. Any thoughts, by the way, on Call Me by Your Name? Would you like to? Say? Yeah, I have the line for you. It's a flaccid film about male eroticism. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well done. Well done. Hostiles is the next film on our list. As my voice cracks, Christian Bale stars in it, and um. This, talk about reviews, Dan mentioned earlier that I said about uh, Dunkirk, best war film since Saving Private Ryan. Well, the review from Chris, I hope I pronounced this right, Nashawadi from Entertainment Weekly, was that Hostiles is the best Western since Unforgiven. And I'm like, man, that's a hell of a blurb. I guess I'm in now. And again, it's a film that takes way too long to get to where it's going. You heard that blurb I mentioned off the top. I like the fact they're trying to look at Native American issues. The story is this. Christian Bale is this gunslinger looking to hang him up, but he's got one last act here. He's going to uh, transport West Studi and this Native American band back to where they're going. He wants to refuse this time, move on. He can't. Rosamund Pike, who was so great in Gone Girl, she plays a woman that uh, eventually Bale uh, becomes attached to, and then she tries to help him see through on this mission. Beautifully shot by uh, Scott Cooper. Uh, the director, but I just thought, in terms of westerns, you've got to give me more story than this. You heard Dan mention in the last podcast, and I'm seeing movies for uh, costume design and other things. He's looking for plot and story, and there's just not enough of it in Hostiles, but it is atmospheric. If you love westerns, you'll like this film. Bale, as always, is a terrific actor because he can do so much with so little. You know, just a glance, he's so stoic, and yet he's obviously very good at conjuring up emotion. Uh, and he does that once again in this film. It just didn't have enough story for me. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Call me by your name, by the way. I'm giving one and a half Maple Leafs. So those are two. And Ferdinand, shout out to the bull. Kathy Leogrand sent me the books. I read it to my kids and we went and saw the movie. I'm giving this one two Maple Leafs. So, I, hey, someone's a Grinch today on Cinephile. It's fine. It's, it's The animation's cool. It's a sweet little story. But honestly, the book, which is takes about 10 minutes to read, is better than the 108-minute film. John Cena plays the bull. Ferdinand is a story about a bull who does not want to fight. He is not a fighting bull. He just wants to smell the flowers and enjoy life. So it's a, it's obviously a sweet story and very well done. But in terms of animation, Coco is the one to go see right now. And Paddington 2 getting rave reviews. So I enjoyed the first one. Can't wait to see the second one. Our girl Sally Hawkins is in it, as is Hugh Grant as well. So those are the three films we're reviewing. Tracy Letts is coming up next right now on Cinephile. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and it is a thrill to welcome in Tracy Letts. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner for drama for his play August Osage County, also a Tony Award winner for his portrayal of George in the revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Also is in seasons three and four of Showtime's Homeland and currently getting great reviews as he is part of the wonderful ensemble cast of Greta Gerwig's film Lady Bird. He's also in the post as well, so a very busy man. Tracy, thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. 
I love the way you were able to wring such sympathy out of the character of Lady Bird's father, and particularly the fact that this is a guy uh, who clearly is dealing with a lot of guilt with the fact that he cannot financially support um, his daughter and, and is, you know, maybe feels incomplete and is dealing with all those emotions that any man does uh, when you're middle aged and trying to find a job. And I love that scene with the cupcake. It was just so sweet and so resonant. How were you able to, to wring those emotions out? Well, it's all on the page. I mean, uh, Greta did something very smart. Well, she did a lot of things that were really smart. Her script was really good and uh, tight and complete on the page. The people felt very complete. And one of the very smart things she did is that she baked in this storyline about uh, middle class. And uh, you see this guy uh, going through this moment in life where he's middle-aged, has a family to support, and has lost his job. It's not what the story is about. It's not what the movie Lady Bird is about. It's just a grace note. Uh, It's just a a bell that gets rung uh, in the background. It's something present in the lives of these characters. But, as I say, it's part of uh, a very smart script that Greta wrote in which uh, all of the characters were given uh, complete lives. So I felt like my job was uh, to just uh, show up and occupy that space that she had created on the page. I love that scene in particular, going for the job interview. And um, you just, I mean, there's, I, I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing, but there is humor in the fact that this guy realizes this is so ridiculous that he's dealing with this guy who's much younger, who's much immature. They're not on the same page. And yet I imagine a lot of 50-year-old men who are unemployed have to somehow subject themselves to this. And then, of course, afterwards, the realization that his own son is going for the same job as well. Tell me about that scene. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty painful pretty painful reality there in the script. It's actually one of the very few scenes in the movie that Sertia is not in. You know, the, the movie is so very much about uh, Lady Bird. But, you know, again, it's on the page, and I, I think it's something everybody can identify with, whether they've lost their job or not. Just the uh, it's part of getting old, right? Uh, looking around and seeing younger people coming up and uh, starting to starting to move you aside. That's the way it goes. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a poignant scene. It's, uh, you know, but Greta just created a great, not only a great scenario, but she created a great environment in which to play those scenes. It was, uh, she, all the work was done for me. I, I feel, feel a little selfish even trying to take any of the credit for it because it's all her. Well, it's, a wonderful film that has obviously hit a chord with so many people, not only audiences but critics. The fact that, at least initially, it was 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, that has never been done before. How much attention yourself as a playwright, uh, you know, as an actor, do you pay attention to reviews? And, and what was your reaction when you saw that? Well, I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to that stuff. I mean, I, I note them. I note, you know, if the reviews are largely positive or negative. But what kind of... Churlish person do you have to be to not like Lady Bird? Who doesn't like Lady Bird? There's really something in that film for everybody, I think. It, you know, credit really hit the sweet spot of a particular moment in time when we uh, are ready to uh, leave our family and move out into the world. And uh, it's, it's a very specific moment in time. It's something that we've all gone through. So... Uh, Kids identify with this movie because it's a moment they're going through or contemplating going through, and adults uh, 
sympathize with this movie, either because they've got kids who are going through it or because they, they've been through it themselves. And I, I just think she did a really beautiful, deft job of capturing that moment. It's a, it's a great, scary, powerful, uh, poignant moment in a person's life. And, uh, yeah, I think she just really hit it out of the park with this we're talking with Tracy Letts. He's one of the stars of the film Lady Bird. Yourself being an award-winning screenwriter, Tracy, was there any advice Greta wanted? I know you're being very generous and pointing out it was all on the page, but did she ask you to rework any dialogue or have uh, maybe you and Laurie Metcalf or Saoirse Ronan work through things, ad-lib a little bit, improvise? No, it was all there. I mean, <clears throat> there were, you know, you do the work when you show up on the uh, on a on a small film like that, you don't get any rehearsals. So you show up and you're ready to, to work on the scene. And so you have the conversation about what the scene needs and what is it you need to bring to it and what's, what's really going on in the scene. But like I say, so much of it was already there. There was, there's, I don't think there's any improvisation uh, in the film. I think it's all of it was scripted. All of it was on the page. Uh, You know, I was very lucky too in that Greta cast the film very well. Lori Metcalf, who plays Lady Bird's mom, my wife in the film, uh, she and I have known each other for 30 years. We're part of the same theater company in Chicago, the Steppenwolf Theater, though we had never worked together before, just kind of coincidentally that we had never happened to be in a play together. Uh, so we, But we know each other's work very well. We work together a lot. We, we, we know each other's moves. We come from the same world. We speak the same language. Sersha was trickier for me only because I didn't know what to expect, and I don't have any children of my own. I thought, well, I'm going to have to try to create a father-daughter relationship here, but the truth is unnecessary. I showed up on the set, and Sersha was so great and charming and funny and knew what was needed, and we just we seemed to click right from, from the jump. She and I just really recognized, oh, no, we're, we're, we, we knew what we needed to do, and so... Uh, it's just, it's a little boring to talk about. It was such a, a, a blissfully conflict-free environment. We're talking with Tracy Letts right now. Well, then how about August Osage County? Maybe we can find some <laughs> drama there. It's a wonderful uh, Pulitzer Prize winning play. Uh, listen, I watched that. I'd seen the movie. I unfortunately did not see the play for which you won the Pulitzer Prize. But, of course, I saw the, the film adaptation, the entire cast, obviously Meryl Streep, Julia Roberts, Margot Martindale, et cetera. I mean, you, the, the amount of star power you have there. What was the genesis of that story, Tracy? How did you come to find this, this matriarch who was just domineering and so entertaining at the same time? Well, it's my grandmother. Uh, it's b- based very much on uh, my grandmother. My grandfather committed suicide uh, by drowning when I was about 10 years old. And my grandmother uh, descended into years of uh, downer addiction and really put our family through hell. And uh, it, the events of that time in my family uh, had been with me, stayed with me for 30-plus years. But as I got involved in the theater and I became a playwright, it always struck me that this was the stuff of drama. And so I decided to uh, explore it in a play. You know, August is not straight autobiography. It's uh, A lot of it is fictionalized. A lot of it is created. But the kernel of, of truth is in there. That's, that's very much my family and it's very much my grandmother. Uh, who was a, a a very challenging person to say the least 
Uh, and uh, as it turned out, a lot of people seem to recognize that character uh, from their lives, which is sad uh, and funny and true. But so many people came up to me after August began its run as a play and said, you've been spying on my family. <laughs> so it turned out that August tapped into something about the challenges of families, how messy and challenging and impossible families can be. Uh, the whole experience for me of August Osage County, I, 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 could, I could write a, a couple of books about it, but certainly the experience of the play uh, over, a, over a long run, a long period of time, a long trajectory that started in Chicago at Steppenwolf and went to Broadway and has played around the world. And then eventually the film, the John Wells film that was made, I don't know how many years later, five, six years later, uh, with all those wonderful actors in it, wonderful film actors, uh, it's, you know, it changed my life. It was a, a huge part of my life. But the, if, if, it, if it looks, uh, if anything about that uh, is entertaining, it's because it, uh, it might look a little bit uncomfortably like real life. Yeah, that is the challenge, of course, is mixing both entertainment with real life. By the way, the post is terrific. You're part of this wonderful ensemble cast. Bruce Greenwood, David Cross, Bradley Whitford, Carrie Coon, your wife, Bob Odenkirk, Sarah Paulson, Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Alison Brie, and, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg. What's it like working with Spielberg, or if you have a story about any of those actors in particular, please tell us. You know, Tom and Meryl... Uh it was a very intimidating environment to be on a set. There's Steven Spielberg behind the camera, and you're playing a scene with Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks. Uh, clearly, giant figures in our business. And so everybody felt very uh, intimidated by that. Everybody felt very scared by it. Uh, but I have to say, they're, all three of them, Steven and Tom and Meryl, are very uh, hardworking uh down-to-earth people, they they have good senses of humor. <laughs> they work hard at their craft. Uh, they they talk to everybody on the set. They're friendly with the crew. Uh, I mean, you're just at some point you get over all that stuff and you you hunker down to do the work. Uh, I, I have to say, everybody was nervous. I, I we would check in with each other in the makeup. Trailer. When as we were getting make, made up, actors would check in and say, "How are you doing?" "Oh, I'm terrified." "How about you?" "I'm very scared." The truth is, Meryl was nervous. Tom was nervous. Stephen was nervous. Uh, the only person on the whole set that I ever saw who was not nervous oh, was Kirk. my wife. Oh. Was Carrie Coon. I don't know why. I, she's just, you know, she's a she's a former athlete, and uh, I don't know if she applies some of that and. But she, when man, when she goes up there, she is so relaxed. I don't know how she does it. She's uh, in the most intimidating, terrifying environment. She, she just seems completely at ease. It's bizarre. But that is a wonderful attribute to have, I'm sure, among many in your wonderful spouse. Uh, Homeland is a wonderful show. Again, you have such a uh, facility here, Tracy, not only with writing, but also the acting. Seasons three and four of Homeland. I love Mandy Patinkin. I just think he's one of those guys. Actor's actor. I mean, I just, I love Saul. Give me, give me a Patinkin story, please. Well, uh, I'll tell you that I had not worked on camera in about seven years uh, when I did Homeland. I had been doing a lot of stage work, and uh, most of the 
on-camera work I've done have been very just pieces here and there, days, weeks. Uh, so when they came and they offered me the job, I was a little nervous about taking the job. I thought, boy, that seems like a lot of work. The character seems tough in some ways. I, I don't know. When I, after Alex Conta, the creator of Homeland, talked me into doing the, the show, and I'm glad he did, uh, I went on the set and I, I went to Claire and to Mandy on the first day and said, look, I haven't done this in a long time. I'm very nervous being here. Uh, I'm going to, with your permission, pick your brain a little bit about how to do this work and what I should be paying attention to. I want to get better at doing this, and this seems like an opportunity to do that. And I have to say, Claire and Mandy were, both of them, so generous uh, talking about their process, the way they work. You know, they couldn't be more different. Claire, uh, like me, she just kind of focuses in on the other actor. She looks them in the eye. She says her line. She tells the truth. Uh, Mandy has a, Mandy has a more uh, technical appreciation of... Uh, Mandy's asking questions about what lens are you using? Uh, did you get that piece? Did you get this piece? Don't you want to bring the camera around there? Are you, you know, he's more exacting in his uh, uh, technical uh, questions. It was fascinating to watch. I, you know, when I, when I first started, I didn't even want to know the camera was in the room. I just like, please, I'm, I'm an actor. I just want to play these scenes with a person trying to pretend the camera wasn't there. It took me a while before I realized both of them quite liked having the camera in the room. It's like, oh, we're making a TV show. We're going to have a camera. So uh, I, I learned a lot from both of them. They're both lovely people. I was hoping you were going to tell me Mandy's like uh, singing Yiddish, like in the uh, breaks. He's an unbelievable singer, right? Every time I see him on talk shows, he's always singing. He's great. We did have one moment on the set. We were shooting uh, outdoors in North Carolina. It was a very hot day. We were on the on the bank of uh, some body of water. We were in a duck blind. We were sweating like crazy, and we couldn't get the shot because airplanes kept passing overhead and kept interfering with the sound. So we were sitting there waiting for a long period of time for these airplanes to stop passing, and Mandy started singing, uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, the <laughs> REM song, and got me to sing along. And so somewhere out there, there's footage of me and Mandy singing <laughs> REM, uh, dressed as Saul and Senator Lockhart on the banks of a river. Oh, that's great stuff. We're going to find that footage. Tracy Letts is in Lady Bird. He's in The Post. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's a Tony Award winner. And he may be part of a film that's going to win Best Picture. Thanks so much for the time today on Cinephile, Tracy. We appreciate it. My pleasure. A Scorsese story. We're down to about five more of these, so still to come, Color of Money, Kundun, and as you've heard recently, I've been talking about some of Marty's documentaries. I did want to talk about The Last Waltz, the Rob Lemley favorite, 1978, an elegy not just to the band, but the 70s and a way of life. Robbie Robertson, the lead guitarist, <clears throat> said in one of the behind-the-scenes interviews that Scorsese wooed in the footage of the group's final concert. This is the band, shot in San Francisco in 1976. Filmed in 35 millimeter using seven cameras, 
The documentary captures the band performing with a series of famous guests, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Muddy Waters, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, and more, against an elegant stage backed with drapes and candelabra. Scorsese trained his camera on the performers' faces much more than their instruments, catching them in states of rapt transport, and the result is as soulful as rock music gets. You ask anybody who um, loves musical documentaries, they will always mention The Last Waltz and what Marty was able to do with it, and that's just a, a snippet of it. The other part of it is this. He knew their music so well, so he went with Robbie Robertson, went over every lyric, and said, okay, on this guitar riff, I'm going to a close-up of the lead guitarist, and on this drum solo, I have a camera right, uh, extreme close-up on the drums. And normally prior to that, if you'd seen a concert footage, it was always just like three cameras. It was literally like a three-camera setup. It's like, here they are, and here's Jimi Hendrix, whatever. Marty was so specific, unsurprisingly, so detailed, so meticulous in the way he shot this with all those cameras that he wanted to be so specific, tailor-made to the music. And when you watch The Last Waltz, you notice it right away. You say, this is not like a generic rock music concert. It really is something that, again, is because of the fastidious detail of somebody like Marty. And he said that for him it was the idea of an opera. All the elements, musical or otherwise, would be linked. He'll shoot three numbers on the MGM stage. The sets were built by Boris Levin, who was his production designer on New York, New York. Uh, he used a color palette based on the burning of Atlanta in Gone with the Wind. Burnt-out bronze, reds, chocolate browns. And as I mentioned, the uh, meticulousness, whole thing was storyboarded because he knew exactly what he wanted with all the lyrics, the concert itself, changes in lighting, the camera movements, matched the lyrics exactly. And wait for this. It took two years to edit. That's incredible for a concert movie that he was that um, painstaking in terms of getting this right. It was as tightly controlled as New York, New York had been chaotic as if Scorsese was engaged in an urgent act of self-restruction. That's where I started getting back in line, he says. The last waltz kept me in line, working like a person in therapy in hospital, but there's no doubt I didn't think I'd never find it again. So in terms of years, right, this is 1978. This is coming off the colossal failure of King of, uh, excuse me, New York, New York, and it's before he made Raging Bull. So it kind of helped him kind of tap into his own zeitgeist again. But it's really well done, uh, particularly the song The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. It's a big song in the South. It's really well done. It still holds up as well. That is the last waltz. I'm Adam Amberg. Thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. Next week, we will have the Oscar nominations, which are coming out on the 23rd. So I will recap to the Oscar nominations. Also, Ben Lines and I are on our way to Sundance. So the week after that, we'll start rolling out reviews of some of the movies we saw at Sundance and some of the interviews with guests as well. Fingers crossed. Nicholas Cage, we got booked. We got Nick Offerman, Giamatti, we're in a press line, Paul Rudd, John Hamm. So hopefully you'll be hearing those interviews and more. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.